From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While last week was largely about donning a cap and gown for many Gators, it was back to business for a number of athletes in recent days. For seniors, every time donning the orange and blue for competition at this point in the calendar could be the last, so the pressure is palpable. On this week's show, we'll chat with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry about future Lone Star State showdowns for football, softball's unlikely underdog triumph, vengeance for men's tennis, a familiar face returning to the women's basketball program, and the greatest game-ending plays in history in the PAT. Plus, softball's Amanda Lorenz reflects on how she fell in love with UF, her record-smashing career, and more in a senior retrospective. But first, when Scott Strickland teased there was more big news to come after the announcement of the future home-and-home series with Colorado, he wasn't kidding. So to open this week's roundtable, we asked Scott and Chris about the significance of Florida and Texas agreeing to lock horns in the regular season. The Texas-Florida matchup, you know, if you picked non-conference opponents to play, I mean, Texas is right up there uh, with anybody that schools haven't met since 1940. A lot has changed since, <laughs> obviously. They are both national uh, brands, uh, both programs, you know, that have had a lot of success, won national championships, and we're going to have to wait a while for it. It's not until, what, 2030 and 31, but it's looking ahead and starting to uh, secure some of those matchups that, you know, fans have demanded. We're seeing a movement across the country, and I, I uh, heard Scott Strickland on, on a radio show this week talk about this, and he uh, he's like, yeah, this is uh, this is where it's going. Uh, empty seats across the country in college football. They've spoken, and uh, these athletic directors and the powers that be realize that you know you you need these marquee matchups during the regular season. And Florida, you know, we all know they're if you follow the Gators closely, that's not been their tradition. But times have changed, and uh, you've seen Georgia do it, Texas, uh, Clemson. I mean, a lot all your major programs now, Adam. Are, starting to schedule more of these and Florida is in the you know joined the party with uh, Colorado in 28 and 29 uh, in Texas and 30 and 31 and uh, I think you're going to see another one there uh, there's some holes there to still fill and I know Scott Strickland from just listening to what he said he he's looking to uh, you know add more of those matchups uh, in coming years in fact he he tweeted his goal is to have 10 power 5 games on the schedule a year. So a more attractive kind of thing. And you think that, Oh, well, power five, well, you, you should have power five. Well, a lot of times you're not going to have power five. The home game you're going to sneak in there is going to be one of those maybe mid-major um, uh, FBS teams or whatever. But um, you know, the fact that he's shoot for this, remember this, the Gators have not played an out of state regular season game um, against a non-conference foe since 1991 at Syracuse, a game I happened to attend <laughs> in my second year covering the Gators when a fellow by the name of, Kirby Dardar uh, took a reverse on the opening kickoff uh, at Syracuse, went the distance and paved the way for a 38-21 victory, after which Spurrier said, I told him to watch the reverse. I told him to watch for the reverse. 
you hear all the time about uh, uh, games that aren't going to get people excited. Um, you know, games against uh, teams that, that, you know, aren't, aren't quote unquote division one teams. Uh, um, these are certainly will get people's attention. Uh, I think we talked about Colorado. That's a cool place to go. Mm-hmm. Colorado coming. People talk, Oh, they're not very good. Well, yeah, it's also 2019. It's a long way away. Um, Texas is going to be Texas and it won't matter if they're in one of their lulls and they're coming off a six and six. It will be Texas. Everybody will be excited about that. But Scott is right. The, the team, the players that will be playing in that right now, I think are in sixth grade. Um, but that'll be here, uh, eventually, but they will be others before that, that will get fans excited as well. The part of this that, that I find really fascinating is just that we know that fans don't want the cupcake games and that's why they're not well attended. And that's why there's a move toward more of these types of big games. But I think you've looked at who's most upset that the cupcake games are going away are the cupcakes because they need those games to provide revenue for their programs. So I just think it's it's such a an interesting dynamic there that a lot of people watch that and they feel badly for the team it's getting beaten up on, but they're the ones who benefit the most from those games. So it's going to be I'm, I'm going to be curious to see what happens in the college football ecosystem as those get phased out more and more by the schools that have the deepest pockets. Well, yeah, I think it's almost reflected in the changes in the game in recent years already. You have the haves and have-nots. There's even, you know, been discussion that's kind of quieted now about the Power Five schools almost branching off and, and creating their own division and championship. Uh, so, you know, who knows where it's going down the road, but I do believe there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern there at that level for those schools and you know maybe some of them eventually drop football if they can't get these kind of matchups but there's still you know there's still going to be a hole or two each year for most of your division one programs so i think you'll still see them but it's just maybe not two in the same season uh you know coaches like them because it gives teams a chance to get on the field against the opponent instead of yourself and maybe to tune up for your conference schedule. And to look at some players that wouldn't normally maybe play. That's, that's obviously a big one too. Yeah. So I think there'll always be some element there, but again, Adam, you're right. I mean, it's, I don't know if we're going to see it as we have uh, going forward because there is, you know, you got to please the fans. I mean, that's, that's the people who make all this possible in the end, that and TV and uh, TV loves those kind of matchups. Fans love those kind of matchups. While we're talking about things that are uh, a long way away, there's probably going to be another refresh of the swamp before those games actually get played. But as of right now, uh, if you strolled into the stadium there on campus, you would see it looking not quite itself because it's getting a a much-needed turf facelift. Yeah, and it's certainly much needed after the Garth Brooks concert with the (laughs) temporary flooring that was put down, which also served the purpose of uh, helping kill off the remaining of that grass. But the stadium... Um, was basically shut down while they were saying farewell to the to the grass that has been there since 2012 and they're gonna bring in some new stuff and i imagine uh come that first game um in september the field is going to look spectacular it's a new turf uh something i believe that it's called tiff tough bermuda the website calls it fine textured bright green turf that is disease resistant and the best drought tolerant grass on the market so wow it's also the best for resistance to traffic, and obviously there's going to be a lot of traffic on the on the football field over the next few years. So it's just something that's a it's a housekeeping thing. You know, players are going to like it a lot better. 
um, six years later, you know, the grass just isn't what it was. The ground isn't what it was. So, uh, Adam, I can't give you a, a, a cost of what this whole thing has done, but I can tell you, I was actually here in um, 1990 when Spurrier put his fist down and said, we're going back to grass. And uh, uh, that was the first time they, they tore the turf out. It used to be really, really hot down there, as, as, as longtime fans would know. And back then it cost $550,000 oh, wow. to resod the field. So, uh, you know, you're talking 30 years later, uh, I would imagine that it's a nice little price tag, but obviously for the comfort of all and specifically the, the players from both teams, um, that'll be obviously worth, worth the price. So this is a lot of off-the-field news for football, scheduling, the turf, etc. There's also been some other news in the last week or so that, that hasn't been great for the program in terms of guys leaving. And, Scott, you know, there's, there's been a lot that's been happening. There's a lot of rumors that are out there. What can you tell us about what we know at this point and, and how it affects the Gators going into to next season? Well, it's, the main thing, obviously, is uh, you know Jalen Jones and uh, Chris Still, two freshmen who came in together. You know, the Jalen Jones news was, uh, you know, disturbing, and then it led to other uh, news, and one of those being that Chris Still has departed the program, the freshman cornerback from Los Angeles, and he's announced uh, on Twitter this week that he will be going to the University of Oregon, and, you know, it's, it's disappointing all around, and whenever you have issues off the field like this, especially young players who were just, they were both early enrollees, they'd only been here three or four months, but... It's also a reminder, I think, sometimes that, you know, these these guys are 17, 18 years old. They're away from home for the first time, and sometimes the decision-making uh, isn't as uh, good as their parents, their coaches, the fans would like, and it leads to uh, issues that we've seen. And, you know, on the field, I don't think it's going to be a big thing in 2019. Uh, but, you know, future classes, uh, sure, it's going to be an impact, and that's where Dan Mullen and his staff, they're going to have to address those losses on the recruiting trail, and uh, I'm sure that will be a, a priority for him. It has to be. Well, as Dan Mullen continues his speaking tour as well, I'm sure we'll hear more from him, and, and we'll talk about that at a later time. But right now, I do want to talk about something that happened on the field that was very impactful. And, and Chris, a week ago, we were talking about softball and said they're going to the SEC tournament, and yeah, things weren't looking great for them in terms of getting that top eight seed, and and then they just run right through the whole tournament. And what do you know, after all is said and done, they're a five seed, they're the highest seed in the SEC, despite finishing sixth in the conference. So it seems like just when people are about to count out Tim Walton, and especially players like Kelly Barnhill and Amanda Lorenz, they make a huge impact when there's a lot on the line. Yeah, and Kelly Barnhill, Adam, uh, sure picked a good time to go all Max Scherzer. You know, um, uh, you know what she did in those three games that she pitched in three and oh, 0.33 ERA, 0.075 opponent batting average, 21 innings pitched, only gave it five hits, one run, struck out 24. She was on a mission. And, you know, you're right. We did talk about this last week. I think we talked about how Tim Walton had never really put much of an emphasis on the on the SEC tournament. Um, because he's always gearing up for the for the following week and going into NCAA play. Having said that, it's weird because I remember watching them last year and the, they won the tournament obviously in in 2018 and it's almost like they kind of happened into it and they're like you know we're here might as well win it. I think they're down four nothing against South Carolina in the first game. Yeah, they come back and win six five on a walk off from uh, guess who? Uh, Jordan Matthews. Uh, ball was struck very similarly to the one that Texas A&M. The ball, like a, it was a, it was a gapper that ended up being being a base clearing double. It wins the game, sends him in the next game. Then Kelly Barnhill took over from there. And uh, I was talking, I was in Tim Walton's office uh, earlier this week, and he said, 
something has gotten into her a little bit, maybe a little bit different. Just if you watched her, she's usually pretty kind of icy and stoic. She goes and gives her catcher a high five. She gets excited when things happen. But that look on her face after that clinching strikeout to beat Alabama, team that just swept Florida in a big series late in the season, um, she was really, really excited. And, and a couple of her teammates said the same thing. Maybe this is something that she needed. Maybe, I don't know, kind of kind of awakened her to the fact that uh, it's, it's almost over for her. There's still a lot of softball that could be played for Kelly Barnhill. And obviously she could end up on the biggest stage. And so much changed over the conversation we had a week ago. Um, there's three, actually three teams. None of them are from the state of Florida, which is absolutely, utterly bizarre. Mm -hmm. uh, usually they, they've had three teams in the state of Florida here for, for regionals before. None of the teams that are coming here have faced Kelly Barnhill. So uh, will, will we see her in the first game against Boston U? Maybe not. But uh, uh, I imagine that Florida will get through this regional. And, you know, if all things come to pass and the seas hold up, would bring Tennessee here. Uh, or North Carolina here, which is the next best uh, team in, in, in that bracket. So Florida could very much, very well be here uh, for Super Regional again. And, uh, you know, that's of course, that's a conversation for next week. But Florida's bat showed up a little more. Maybe they're still hitting in the, in the 200s, but uh, timely hits. They really needed against some really, really good teams. Got them where they're, they're in a very enviable position. It's amazing. They go 12-12 and 12 in the conference, and they're the highest-seeded SEC team in the NCAA tournament. So hats off to them. That was an incredible weekend. And they, uh, they celebrated it, you know, in the right way as a team that kind of shot out of nowhere to win something. And the thing about, you know, Florida, an upset winner in the SEC tournament and a high seed, um, kind of bizarre storyline, a little bit different, but maybe that's exactly the kind of uh, storyline this particular team needed this season. Yeah, and you know, you talk about finding yourself at the right time of the year. I was blown away by the stat during that South Carolina game that opened the SEC tournament for them. Their biggest comeback all season had been by one run, and then they have a four-run comeback after like six hours of rain delays. So it was really, really interesting what they did. And, and as you guys well know, you can take a hot pitcher all the way to a national championship. Tons of teams have done it. So. That's the opportunity ahead of the Gators, and we'll see what they do with it. Moving on to another team we talked about last week, men's tennis. It was a big weekend for them at home, a chance not only to get out of the round of 16, but to get some critical revenge on Tennessee. And uh, it wasn't easy, but they did pull it off in a pretty dramatic fashion. And Brian Shelton said afterwards, uh, I mean, first of all, it's a 4-2 it's to two final. Uh, Florida was in utter command at 3-1, to one, but then things started happening whether it was uh, Oliver, Oliver Crawford uh, turning his ankle and having to take an injury point uh, on court one. You had Lucas uh, uh, Greif uh, on court six. He kind of uh, tweaked his knee a little bit. He had to take a penalty point, and it's three to one, but then all of a sudden it's three to two, and Crawford is, is battling uh, at court one. He's in, a, he's in the third set. It's four to four, and it, it really it's, it's all going to come down to, um, to Duarte Valle. He's lost the first set. He made a nice comeback to win the second set, and he's down. He loses two uh, match points in a tiebreaker in the third set. Uh, he staves off two match points, and he comes up with a huge tiebreaking victory, clinches the set on court five uh, against the Tennessee Volunteers, who, of course, uh, a couple weeks earlier came to Florida for the SEC tournament. Florida was the top seed and the regular season champion, and Tennessee ousted them 
And on the way off the court, it was a lot of gator chomping, kind of like the whole Grant Williams thing was during basketball. There was some jawing back and forth. There were some words that were said in the tennis uh, uh, locker room, maybe in the hallway and passing between players. There was some bitterness. And it showed up in this rematch. And it was some good theater out there. And Florida is now in the Elite Eight for the second straight season. Uh, a little different this year. Last year they were they were eighteen and or excuse me nineteen and ten as an elite eight team. This year they're twenty four and three, mm. and ranked uh, fourth in the country. And they're playing. Uh, they're going to nationals. It was a little different. Um, they, they tweaked the system this year. That was a super regional this past weekend. The one one match only uh, for this weekend. And now the 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 elite eight is held at the national site. It used to be the Sweet Sixteen was held at the national site. It's in Lake Nona, Florida at the National Tennis Center down there. And uh, Florida will be tailored, playing Baylor. They have a chance to win a national championship. And this is a program, uh, a, a rare one on campus that's never won a national championship. You think men's tennis in the state of Florida? No, it hasn't. The women have won seven. Okay. <laughs> Brian Shelton, it's taken him some time to uh, get the team that he wants. This is a guy who won a national championship as a women's coach at Georgia Tech. It's the only NSA championship in that school's history in any sport. Uh, no football doesn't count because it's not an NSA sponsored sport. Uh-huh. But he, it's a <laughs> very difficult place to win on the women's side, big, to be quite honest with you. And and he's managed to jump over to the men's side. And again, it's his seventh season. This is a guy who, in his first year, was beaten in the first round of the NSA tournament on his home court by the University of Denver. So you can imagine what this was like—a very uh, emotional uh, win for Florida. Crowd was fantastic. Players responded, and now they get a chance to try to do something that uh, no Florida men's tennis team has done, and they get to do it two hours south of here. So uh, it could potentially be quite a weekend for the for the men's tennis team, and all starts on Thursday. Chris has actually been very busy this week because, in addition to writing stories about that, you also wrote a story about a uh, a new assistant for women's basketball and a, a homecoming of sorts as well that kind of complete that story. Yeah, Erica Lang Montgomery played here from 1988 to 1992 she played for two florida coaches uh she was a junior when carol ross showed up who of course is the greatest uh uh women's basketball coach um here in florida history having won over 60 percent of her games and taking florida to seven ncaa tournaments including an elite eight she was a blue collar kind of player one year i believe i think her junior year, she averaged 14 points and eight rebounds, I believe. And then, and I think fought through some injuries as a senior, but she's bounced around. She's coached in the big 10. She's coached in the ACC. She's coached in the PAC 12. And for the last uh, nine seasons, she's been the head coach at Flagler over in St. Augustine. So she's from Jacksonville. Uh, Obviously she has institutional knowledge relative to Florida and relative to the state of Florida. So, uh, She'll be joining the staff and um, obviously we'll hit uh, the recruiting round running when coaches can go back out again in a, in, in a couple of weeks. So uh, welcome home to Eric, who she was once Erica Lang. Now she's Erica Lang Montgomery. And she happened to t- tell me the story about how she uh, she was on crutches uh, in the O-Dome. She couldn't practice and was walking through the O-Dome and met another guy who was just a student who happened to be on crutches walking through the O-Dome. And she ended up marrying him. So uh, <laughs> it was an interesting kind of story, but she's back in the O-Dome. And obviously that's a place where she played and a place where she met her future husband. She has two kids. So this is a, it's kind of a special homecoming for her. So, uh, you know, we'll roll out the red carpet and see what she can do for that for that program.
All right, let's move on to our PAT this week, which was inspired by Kawhi Leonard's, I don't know, is it fair to call it anticlimactic? It was just a weird way to win a game and a series as far as quote-unquote buzzer beaters go, but it got me thinking about the best game-winning moments. So a buzzer beater, a walk-off hit, anything that happens to end and win a game. I was curious, some of the ones that stood out to you. I was at... I was attended, and, and I think we've talked about this before, and stood on the field for one of the great walk-offs in, in sports history, and that would have been the, uh, the Doug Flutie play. Hmm. I was on the goal line when uh, he threw that pass to Gerard Phelan, and uh, it was the day after Thanksgiving in 1984, and it's funny, it was, it was in the, the old Orange Bowl, and uh, it, it wasn't like it was a sold-out game or anything. But it was just the whole nature of the game. It, the final score of the game was 47-45. Doug Flutie and Bernie Kosar both threw for over 400 yards. You couldn't have asked for a greater, uh, more exciting, classic shootout between two really, really good teams. And uh, Doug Flutie was probably going to win the Heisman Trophy anyway. But uh, after that game, they should have just given it to him in the end zone. But uh, uh, in terms of, of witnessing one in person, uh, and, and again, that one, like it, it didn't win a championship of any kind, but it certainly uh, uh, goes down in, uh, in, in history as one of one of great, great moments in ever in college football. And um, certainly in terms of one, something that I witnessed, that was that. And it was a true walk off, too. He was being chased by Jerome Brown back there. And I think Daniel Stubbs and just jacked that ball right down the middle. And for some reason, uh, Gerard Phelan was able to get behind a pretty good secondary with a bunch of NFL players back there and cool game and a great, a great memory of mine. And I, I think I was only out of, uh, I was only out of college a couple of years. And I was a guy who this happened to be also my first college football game I ever saw in person. Wow. Quite an indoctrination into, uh, into the game. So I would start with 2006, the Jarvis Moss block kick against South Carolina, final play of the game. That Good was, one. might be the loudest I've ever heard the swamp actually to this day. The next one for me would be in 2009, Florida, Alabama, the walk-off Grand Slam for Allie Gardner in Oklahoma City. That was as stunning a moment as I think I've ever witnessed in person. Um, and then slightly lower stakes, but really, really memorable, was the Chandler Parsons buzzer beater against South Carolina in the O-Dome. That happened so quickly. And Chris, I mean, you probably remember, it was just boom on one end with a layup. To right. t- or I think it was... It was Devin Downey. I don't know if it was the yeah. layup to tie or to take the lead. No, I think it was to take the lead. Layup to take the lead, and then quickly down the other end, Chandler Parsons hits a three. And that, that was the year of Parsons buzzer beaters. And I remember sitting in the rowdy section when that happened. So those were all uh, really impactful moments I still think about to this day. Well, I mean, I saw one recently that was pretty odd. Last year about this time, Austin Lane, where these home runs, to send the Gators to the College World Series off the Auburn right fielder's glove. It bounced off his glove and went over the fence, and the Gators are off to Omaha. So, I mean, that one there, I mean, that's certainly the most uh, dramatic single moment I've uh, seen in Gators baseball, and uh, probably other than Chioza's shot. Or, let's face it, I mean, Felipe Frank's throw against Tennessee. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know. That's that's one that we've talked about on the show, too. But that was a, a great moment in a really difficult season. But, you know, if you were there that day in the swamp, I mean, you're not going to ever forget that. It was it was a great moment. And uh, so, yeah, I've seen some in person. The ones that really resonate the deepest with me are the ones I remember as a kid, because 
again, it, it, they weren't as prominent as they seemingly are now because there's just, we see more of them now live, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, the instant they happen, you know, people are doing Twitter and memes and gifts and they just, we just get flooded with them right away. Right. So maybe that, maybe that's just the old man in me talking. I don't know. <laughs> Well, luckily, there's going to be a lot more moments you guys are going to be at live and covering in the next few weeks. Gator teams that are in the postseason, make sure to follow Chris and Scott at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. Although I reversed the order, you guys can probably figure it out. Uh, and check out all their content on FloridaGators.com. Guys, thank you so much, as always. Uh, thanks, Adam. Hey, Adam. Softball's road to the SEC tournament title last week was far from routine. With nearly eight hours of travel delays in our long trek from Gainesville to College Station, then additional hours of weather interruption in the middle of their opening game. So when the Gators fell down 4-0 following a restart against South Carolina, most would understand if they didn't have the wherewithal to make a run. But instead of fading, the Orange and Blue charged back to win in walk-off fashion and kept on winning until the trophy was theirs. So to begin our conversation with Amanda Lorenz, we asked her where they found the will to overcome the adversity. I think it was before the bottom of the seventh, we all looked at each other and we're like, we're Gators. Like we, we fight. That's what we do. We don't just roll over. We have something to prove. So let's do it. Let's keep proving people wrong. Like let's, let's play for something. Let's do something cool. Let's take chances. And I think that was the whole week was us just taking chances and just trusting ourselves. And if we didn't get it done, the person behind us would get it done. It was just, this group was really close. So we really feed off of one another. I think that it can either be really good, obviously, and we've had some bad moments too. But um, when I, when everybody gets going, it's very infectious. And I think that's why this week was such a good week. We had so many heroes and so many different people step up. Like there were so many contributors. It wasn't just one person who stole the show other than Kelly. Kelly really just had a dominant, amazing week. But like as far as the offense goes, there were so many different people that contributed. It was so much fun to be a part of. We're going to bring it back to softball here in just a few minutes, but I want to talk about kind of your story of where you started. So can you tell us about your family, what your parents did for a living, where you grew up, and, and all those details? I grew up in Moorpark, California. It's like a little north of Los Angeles, about 40 minutes north. And my dad's name is Danny. I have a little sister named Courtney, and my mom's name is Susie. Um, and growing up, my dad is an electrical contractor and, um, my mom growing up was just a stay at home mom, just the do it all mom, hostess with the mostest, <laughs> really always supportive. I was just honestly a crazy child with a lot of energy and all of my neighbors, um, they were always older than me and I would always be out with them playing with the boys in the street and they're honestly saints and they knew exactly how to handle me, but I was like going to beat them at all times and I was just a psychopath and my parents were so thankful that they were so patient with me and knew how to knew how to just let me be me um when most boys probably would have just never played with me again um (laughs) then I was just had so much energy that they threw me in softball and soccer trying to get some energy out (laughs) and hoping that um it would just be a positive way to me put some of my competitive nature into effect and it just stuck. At what point did you realize this was something you really wanted to do? Because it sounds like you would have been successful at a lot of things just because of that competitive nature. But why did softball stand out as something you wanted to commit everything to? Um, I just always loved it. Like I really never had that burnt out phase. Like 
a lot of my friends growing up, especially like all stars and in travel ball, like they would much rather have been like with their friends sleepovers or doing anything other kids do during the summertime. And I really never had those feelings of feeling like I was missing out on something like softball was always what I love to do. And I had so much fun. Like there was never a time that I didn't want to go to practice. I always just wanted to compete and have fun with my friends. And I, I just have always loved the game. But I think like there was a time where I had to choose because I was also playing travel soccer um, in like seventh grade or sixth grade. And so I had to choose between um, the two. And I was much better at softball and liked softball more. So stuck with softball. And obviously you got better and better at it to the point where you were one of the top players in the nation coming out of high school. So a lot of people wanted you. I'm sure a lot of West Coast teams wanted you as well. What do you remember about the recruiting process and what the Gators did to stand out? I remember, so I grew up not very far from UCLA. Growing up, I knew rosters. I knew players. Like, I just loved the game of softball. Like, I watched the 2008 Olympics. Like, I still have a um, helmet in my room back home of the 2008 team. They all signed it. (laughs) And one of the coolest things I have, and the fact that, like, I last summer I got to play with Kelly Crutchman and her her signature is on that helmet. Like, it's just the coolest thing ever for me. I'm just, like, such a softball nerd. And, um... (laughs) literally worshiped the ground they walked on and I've like gotten to know so many of them so that's been like the coolest thing like if only like eight-year-old me knew what this sport has done for me is just insane but um I loved UCLA and also I had a hitting coach from like the time I was like six um and she played softball at Arizona um when Jenny Finch was there so she was a part of a really really good team Mm -hmm. and so I always just like had UCLA and Arizona in mind but I really didn't know anything about the recruiting process until I joined the Batbusters. Um and Mike Stith told me the first weekend he was like, Oh yeah, UCLA coach is gonna be at our games this weekend and I honestly looked at him like he was crazy. I mean I was in eighth grade and that was probably when I thought like, oh wow, I might actually go somewhere mm-hmm. with this. And like the things started um getting really real. And sure enough she walked up and I I swear I like almost peed down my leg because I was <laughs> like, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, and then eighth grade is when I really started to get noticed, and a travel ball coach would just let me know certain schools were interested and literally had the best travel ball coach ever of all time. And there was a lot of schools I found out after I committed that were interested, and he was like, you wouldn't have been a good fit there. You wouldn't have liked it there. So I think he, he just knew me and knew where, where I would thrive, and so he told me schools. And I just always liked Florida because I wasn't really educated on their program other than the fact that I remember watching them on TV. And I always thought they looked so professional. I always loved their uniforms. I thought the way that they acted, I really liked. But other than that, I didn't really like dive into their program a lot just because I was, I used to grow up going to UCLA games. So I just was very knowledgeable about them and like asked a lot of questions. But after my first phone call with Coach Walton, like we clicked right away and I could just feel that like his coaching style would be something that I would thrive under because he's a lot like Mike Stith. And so then after talking to him, I was like, wow, I'm going to take a visit to Florida because I think I really like what they're about. And then also, I just know that there's much more to softball when you go to a school. So I wanted to be educated on how their academics are and like thinking about what my major would be and yada, yada, yada. So I say I was thinking about all of these things, but I was a freshman in high school. So Mm -hmm. I don't know how all of these things went through my mind. Um, (laughs) I knew that eventually I couldn't ever see myself leaving the sport and I didn't know whether 
I would stay involved by coaching or um, maybe working for a softball brand one day. I really didn't know, but I knew that I probably wanted to major in sport management. And turns out Florida has one of the top sport management programs in the country. And so that was awesome hearing about that like over the phone. And then when I came to visit all other schools, I was like, oh, let me see a classroom like campus. Awesome. And my first day at Florida, um, we stayed at a hotel on campus and Coach Walton picked us up and we came to the field and the field was lit up and it was late. And that was the only thing I saw was the field. And I knew I walked out to the outfield and I knew exactly this is where I wanted to be. And I hadn't seen any part of campus other than the softball field. Wow. So I, I knew like I just got this feeling like God brought me here and God wanted me to be a Gator. And I really didn't know much other than the fact that I was pumped about it and my travel ball coach always told me, don't ever commit on your first visit, like, because you're going to get all these feelings on every visit. Every school is amazing. You need to, like, really sit down and think about it. You don't want to make a decision that you're going to regret. And so I remember getting in the hotel room that night and I was like, you need to calm me down because I'm probably going to commit tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He was like, no, you're not. And I was like, sir, yes, sir. No, I'm not. <laughs> and then I waited a few weeks and came back or months. I came back in December and, and committed because I just, I couldn't talk to other schools knowing that I knew where my heart was and I knew I wanted to be a Gator. Well, given your reaction to seeing the field, I guess, six, seven years ago, what do you imagine other recruits are going to feel like when they come and see what you guys have now as the, one of the newest, best facilities in the country? <laughs> oh, I just, I can't even imagine you not wanting to be a part of this program. Anybody who gets the opportunity, I really think you would be stupid not to take it because this place is unbelievable. And it just, I thought I chose it because of the softball program and I did, but there's just so many things that have impacted my life from choosing the University of Florida that I really had no idea from the people in our academic offices to my professors, to the friends that I've made from other sports. Like this has been the coolest experience ever. And I did not see it any of that, like in my recruiting visit, like I had no idea the impact that all of those other things would have on me, but it's been the coolest thing ever. When you came on campus, I'm sure there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of great players already in the program. I'm curious, which ones do you remember that kind of took you under their wing and, and showed you the ropes as you got started? Immediately, I was partnered with Kirsty Merritt for everything. She was my throwing partner. Um, we were partners for the triathlon. We were partners in individuals. So like she didn't really have a choice but to teach me the ropes and show me the ins and outs. But um, definitely Kirsty and Aubrey Monroe had um, huge impacts on me in freshman year. I think they're lead by example kind of people. Um, they just do the right thing always. And I'm usually a big rule follower. So that was definitely comforting to know that like people like that still do that too. So I was like found comfort in that because in high school, that wasn't always, you know, the case with others. So yeah, they just, they taught me a lot of how to do things the right way. What what's acceptable here, what's not acceptable here, what the standard is, um, how that standard will never drop. The list goes on, but I just, I sent them a long text the day before my senior day because I was like, I can't believe it's mine. Like, I remember yours, mm -hmm. like it was yesterday. And I was just thankful for all the things that they've done for me. And we're still really, I'm still really good friends with both of them. So I think those two specifically were great influencers on my freshman year. I always like asking seniors that question. And then the flip side of it, which younger players do you feel like you've passed that on to and you've had the biggest impact on? It's a good question. I'll say this. I've learned a lot coming in. I played for the Batbusters and all of us were the same kind of people where we could all talk to each other the same way and um, received information the same way. Um, we're all kind of 
the same type of people. So it was really easy to be on a team like that, where everyone you were surrounded by was exactly like you at all times. And so to be a leader on that team was the easiest thing ever, because it was like, what would I want to hear in that moment? You Mm -hmm. know, so that was easy for me. And then coming here, it's not the case. There's few people that like to be spoken to how I want to be spoken to. There's people I like to be told straight up to the point, tell me what I need to do now. Cool. Let's do it. And there's other people that don't take it necessarily that way and maybe need to be told in another way. I just came here and realized that maybe I'm saying something and they're not going to even understand what I'm saying and just kind of brush it off because that's not their type of personality and they don't know what I'm saying in a way. Mm -hmm. So Coach Walton had us take personality tests and we all like had to understand everyone else like we would read all of our strengths and weaknesses and breakdown of our personality and that was huge for me to understand that was like a pivotal moment in my leadership from knowing that other people take things a totally different way and need to be spoken to a totally different way in order to get things across or else they won't ever click for them so that's been a huge thing of learning I've I love that I love that challenge um, I think Danielle Romanello and I have talked a lot and bonded over that. She gets it. I'm sure you're hoping the answer to this is going to be different in a few weeks. But as things are right now, what's your best memory from your time on the field? Is there any particular moment or moments that you really think about a lot? Um, obviously, Jordan Matthews' walk-off last year against AM was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. I was literally like rounding third knowing it went over and like weeping, running into home. Like it was the coolest moment ever. That was so special. And the double that I had in the championship series in the 12th inning against Oklahoma was pretty cool too. When you hear 10,000 people just screaming as you hit two out, two strike game tying double in the national championship. I mean, that was, that was pretty insane. Do you have any favorite memories from Gator sporting events other than your own? I've really enjoyed watching volleyball games. We love going to gymnastics meets, um, football games we always go to. But I'd say probably gymnastics have been my favorite hmm. going in. Have you ever tried to get in the gym with them and, and do some of what they do? <laughs> we actually did my freshman year. <laughs> they let us go in as a team. We went in, like coaches, everything. And they were like, yep, have fun. And we had like 45 minutes to just screw around and act like gymnasts. It was so fun. Like the beam, I'm like, how do they... I think my foot took up like the whole width of the beam. I'm like, you really flip on this thing? It's insane. Outside of softball, what do you enjoy doing in your free time? I know you probably don't have that much of it, but what are the the go-to options? Well, here in Gainesville, if there's no softball, I'm generally sleeping, (laughs) hanging out with my roommates. Um, I've been so fortunate to have the same roommates since freshman year. They're my best friends, and we're literally inseparable, so we hang out all the time. And then um, when I'm home, I just hang out with my family and my boyfriend Griffin a lot, probably just enjoying some downtime because there's just not much of it. You talked earlier about some of your plans for what's next and getting beyond softball. But I'm curious, as you look more into the the near future, what does that look like for you, mixing in the NPF and the other softball objectives you want to achieve as well? Well, I graduated in December, so I just finished my first um, semester of grad school, and I'm going to stay an extra year and finish grad school. So I'm excited that I don't really get to say goodbye to this place yet. Continue to work under Coach Walton. I'll be a graduate manager, so just get to learn from him and learn more like behind the scenes stuff and just kind of go know what goes into his life other than the parts that I see every day. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that, just to like learn from him in a different realm and just continue learning about the game just because I feel like there's so much more left to learn. And I know that I can't see myself leaving the sport. So I think that I'll find my way into coaching post that. I just feel like 
this sport has given me so much, like more than I had ever thought possible. And I just feel like I need to give back in any way that I can and pass on any knowledge that I have and hope that I can impact um, any younger athlete the way that so many athletes impacted me. You mentioned earlier that 2008 Olympic team and what an important place they had for you when you were younger. How much do you think about 2020 in Tokyo and and what does that look like? Obviously, my first um, goal is Florida and finishing this year, but it's always been such a goal of mine to play for Team USA and compete for a gold medal. I'd say that I had a dream of being in the Olympics before I had a dream of playing in college because of that team. I went to to their Bound for Beijing tour. I was in line for autographs with Jenny Finch, Pat Osterman, Kelly Crutchman, um, Lisa Fernandez. I have them all. Natasha Wally, Jessica Mendoza. I mean, it's been the coolest thing. And then I got to play for Laura Berg and Natasha Wally and Jessica Mendoza actually lives in Moorpark. And so Hmm. I've gotten to talk to her on a few times and, oh, it's just been the coolest thing. Like I literally worship the ground they walk on and, um, a lot of them I like talk to now. So it's like really, really cool. <laughs> so you've achieved so much in your time. Uh, you've got a lot of rings, first team, all SEC, four years in a row, first skater to do that. And yet there's that one big ring that you don't have. I'm curious, especially for you and for Kelly, as you enter this postseason run, how much does that weigh on you knowing this is your last chance to reach that ultimate goal? So coming in here, I was like convinced I was going to win four SEC championships and four national championships. I thought like that was definitely going to happen, that or bust, national championship or bust. And while I still, with all my heart, want to win a national championship, I just know that um, this program has given me so much and I've learned so much that it's not going to be a disappointment if I don't. Where freshman year, if you told me that I would think like this now, I'd be like, you're stupid. Like there's no way. <laughs> If I don't win a national championship, then what was the point? But it's been the best experience of my life by far. And definitely that's the goal. And why not? I mean, let's do it. I'm in. Sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) But, But definitely my perspective has changed since freshman year. Well, in any case, we wish you a lot of luck trying to win that national championship on the road to the College World Series. So thank you so much for your time and for talking to us. Thank you so much. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Head to FloridaGators.com for info on all of this week's action, and make sure you come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.